Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Okay, welcome to the Plant Cutting Podcast. Isaac here. I've been outside all day working in the garden, I'm all sunburnt and dirty, but uh, we got to put this episode out tomorrow. So uh, we're speaking with Stephen Taylor, and he is amazing. He wrote a book called A Humoral Herbal, A Practical Guide to the Western Energetic System of Health, Lifestyle, and Herbs. And it is an amazing book. Um, about the humoral system of medicine and how it intersects with herbalism. And this is like the, the traditional system of energetics in the West. So if you're interested in herbalism, inter- interested in energetics, uh, I highly recommend this book. And the publisher, Aeon Books, has given us a discount code for the listeners of the podcast. And it's HH20, HH20, which can be used on the website www.aonbooks.co.uk until May 31st. So, if you want to get this book, I and I recommend getting it. Uh, use that discount code and do it before ne- the end of next week, before May 31st. Okay. Next big announcement. So, if you haven't heard, we are having a in-person conference at our farm this summer. It's September 9th and 10th. Matthew Wood is going to be there. Kate Gilday is going to be there, Lisa Fazio, Zamboni Funk. It's going to be amazing. And early bird tickets are now available. They're only $150. Bucks. Uh, it's a really good deal. And they're avail- going to be available at that price until like July. But there are limited spots. So there's only we're only selling 100 tickets to this event. So if you want to come, make sure you get a ticket as soon as possible. Because it's probably going to sell out. And it's going to be an amazing event. So really excited about that. The link for for that will be in the description along with the discount code uh, for the for Stephen's book. Now we're really excited about this episode. It's going to be an amazing episode. I'm sure you're going to love it. Uh, here we go. Today on the Plant Cutting Podcast, we're honored to have Stephen Taylor. How are you today, Steve? Really well, thank you. Been enjoying the evolving springtime weather here in the UK. Oh, yes. Yeah, we're finally getting spring in central New York, and it's so lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Stephen, you are a herbalist and an author. You've got a dispensary, and you grow herbs and have an herbal practice in Sussex. And you've written this book on the humoral herbal system, which we're really excited about. So, our first question, usually, is what brought you to the plant path? Okay. Well, it I didn't start with humoral medicine, <clears throat> but I think like lots of young people, I felt a strong connection with being in nature. I, I was brought up in London, but spent the summers in the countryside. So I kind of had a, had a love, you know, I, I love the countryside, I love trees, all that kind of stuff, rivers, sea. And then I also found it, I went through a period of my life where I wasn't living in London. I spent a bit of time where I had been sent away to a pretty tough old-fashioned kind of boarding school that we have in, in the UK, where you were, it was it was a pretty tough place. However, it was surrounded by the most beautiful countryside. Mm. And so it really became a place of protection, a place of safety, a place that I could escape to. And then when I became an adult, young adult and was free to go out into the world and do what I wanted to do, I did a lot of traveling. And I had, a, I had a passion to go to, you know, explore different places and wild places. I spent some time living in Spain 
And one of the first journeys I did, and I did it with my partner Zoe, is we were traveling in South America and we were in the Ecuadorian rainforest in, in the Amazon region. And unfortunately, she got quite ill. She had a really bad case of diarrhea and dysentery. And we were in all of those, you've probably never traveled in any developing country. You've probably stayed in those kind of very, very basic hostels that are for people who are traveling through, lorry drivers, loggers, whoever it might be, tin roof, very, very hot during the day, cold at night, very a water supply that was intermittent an hour a day, cockroaches at night, you know, rats scuttling a lot. I mean, it was an awful place. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a terrible place also to be ill. Yeah. So, however, in those places, you're probably aware you can go to the pharmacy and buy anything, you know, mm-hmm. you can buy the strongest drugs and medication. And so I've been going back and forth to the pharmacy, trying to get medicine to help her to stop her. She had constant diarrhea, very, mm. very sick, and nothing seemed to be helping. Mm. And then one particular morning after she'd been quite ill for about three days or so, I went on a walk into the, following one of the tracks into the rainforest that I've followed before. I mean, the rainforest at that point in the Ecuadorian Amazon is absolutely fantastic because it's where the Andes meet the Amazon. You get this incredible explosion of biodiversity. Beautiful. And one of the amazing things there were the, were the butterflies. I mean, absolutely incredible. And so I was, was, was going for a walk along this trail and was completely entranced by all of these butterflies. You know, every time you passed a puddle, they were just taking off. Uh, in a complete dream world like like you are, which probably isn't such a good idea of walking through the rainforest as I then discovered because I suddenly stopped and something made me stop and literally my foot in the air, I looked down and at my feet on the path was the biggest snake I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and it was on the path, obviously it was the morning, so it was, it was you know, the, the tracks through the rainforest, it's the only place where you get sun. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where they warm themselves up. And yeah. so... It was, it was basking in the sun, curled up. Literally, as I stopped, it, it, it arose. It obviously was woken up by my the vibration in my feet. And it looked up at me and I looked up, down at it. And, and I was literally about to step on the thing. And both of us just stared at each other. And then suddenly, like, you know, with, a, with like a bullwhip, it just disappeared into the forest. And I mean, my heart was going. And I thought, no, I'm just going back, see what's going on with Zoe. It kind of freaked me out quite a bit. Yeah. So I, I went straight back to, to, the, to, the, to the village where she was. And on my way into there, I bumped into another traveller. And so having a quick chat to, to him, as you do. And I told him about my difficulty and Zoe being very unwell and the hostel we're in. He said, oh, no, there's a really good hostel you should go to. It's on the edge of the village and it's run by a local woman. And it's got its own spring, clean water, clean beds, mosquito nets. You should take her there. Awesome. So it's a great idea. Took, immediately went there, found there was a room, went back to the hostel, literally carried her there because she was that oh. very, very weak. Took her in and, and, and the woman who ran the hostel, she saw her and she said, you know, go and take her to bed. And I went and gathered all our luggage. And by the time I got back there, the woman came and knocked on our door and she had a glass. I mean, it wasn't dissimilar to this. Mm. And it was about full, maybe a little bit full of actually a very similar looking liquid. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, give her this. And I said, well, well, what is it? And she said, it's plant juice. And, and I said, get her to drink it. So, you know, I, I didn't really know anything about plant medicine at that point, but I was going to willing to do everything. And, and Zoe was just said, look, here you go, drink this. And she drank it. And by that time, it was the evening and we went to sleep. 
And uh, during the night, for the first night, she had no need to get up and go to the toilet at all. That was really great. Had a good night's sleep, woke in the morning. First thing she did, she turned around and she said, I'm really hungry, what's for breakfast? <laughs> wow. Uh, and it was just amazing. And, and, and she, was, she was, you know, ready to eat and, and everything. It was just completely mind-blowing. And it wasn't as if at that point I said, right, I'd better go back and be a herbalist. But then later on in, in my life, after doing a lot more traveling, when a point came that I was settling down and really looking for a way to earn a, earn, earn a living, but in a sustainable way with nature, mm -hmm. I really didn't want to do, you know, I was educated. I could have got any job and lots of money if I'd wanted to. But I really felt that certainly having seen so much global destruction in all the countries I've traveled in. I really wanted to put my energy into something that honored nature and yeah. worked with nature and would bring back a, a balance of some kind. And I tried to get into conservation work, but it was a bit of a closed shop and not a lot of opportunities there. And a lot of it seemed to be going around cutting stuff down, which, oh. <laughs> which I know you have to do that, but I kind of didn't want to go around with a chainsaw all day. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So, so, and then someone had been, actually it was my, it was Zoe's mother had been to the Chelsea Flower Show, the big flower show we have every mm -hmm. year. And she came back <clears throat> and she, she put on the table a leaflet and she said, oh, I thought you might be interested in this. And it was a leaflet from the National Institute of Medical Herbalists. It's the main governing body in the UK of, of, of herbalists and has been around since 1864. Mm. And it spoke about training as a herbalist. And I thought, wow, that sounds really interesting. It yeah. sounds, you know, I by then was interested in plants, very interested, but it never kind of joined the dots. And so that's how I started training. And, and then from then on started to meet, obviously, practicing herbalists. And during that time as well, there's a very, very lovely guy who lives in Wales, and you may have read some of his books. He's called Dylan Warren Davis. And he, he wrote a book back in the 90s, which was called The Hand Reveals. And it's recently been republished by Aeon Books. And it was an exploration of the ancient art of chiromancy, of hand reading. Nice. And he's very much, was very much taking it from the medieval practice as it existed mm -hmm. and its interconnectedness with the her hermetic tradition and the humoral tradition. And in that book was the first time I really read about humoral medicine. So a lovely introductory chapter on the elements and the humours. And I then happened to go to a lecture that he was giving on Culpeper and herbs. Mm, and of course, yeah. I've read Culpepper and loved Culpepper. It was all a bit archaic and interesting and, and oldie woldy. Yeah. And, and, and he said, Does anyone understand what this ast astrological stuff is all about in Culpepper? And everyone said, Not really. <laughs> so he started to explain about how the governance of a plant was a way of giving you an indication, giving you a story about that herb. That would enable you to to use that that story as a jumping off point into the other stories that are presented by the cosmos so whether that is a story of imbalance whether that is a story of connection whether that's a story of a sympathetic action within the body or an antipathetic action it leads you into that through the use of planetary symbolism and so that was really my starting off with really into humoral medicine through through looking at planetary symbolism and of course Culpepper was an astrologer he he did his diagnosis through decumbiture and there are some herbalists who who use that practice I I use myself 
planetary symbolism a great a, a large amount of my practice but I don't do decumbrature charts as a form of diagnosis I use other traditional diagnostic tools such as mm. particular tongue pulse but also just just physiognomy so looking at people listening to people mm. emotional explorations of how their humor <laughs> what humor they have because yeah. that is, is, is actually, and even Carl Pepper says that, I actually really want to know someone's humour. It's really coming from how they behave because their behaviour is coming from the heart and the heart is where the soul resides. So you're looking at their emotional responses as the best guide to you know, identifying humoral strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, I imagine, you know, different healers have different skills, inherent skills themselves and, and predispositions. So some who are maybe more emotionally intelligent can like read that from a person. But some people who are more rational, like the decumbrature is a lot more helpful because it's it's very rational. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's another really intriguing thing. Certainly, when you look into humoral humor, medicine and you look into ancient healing practices, that there is always this. It's a bit like a yin and yang in a way. It's a dynamic yeah. interaction yeah. between rational and non-rational. It's a bit like we've got rational numbers in mathematics, haven't we, and non-rational numbers. So pi is a non-rational number. It's infinite and keeps going. And pi will do things that you can't do with a solid, finite rational number. It's magical. Yeah. Yeah. So it's exactly the same that, that we've got ways. So, you know, in any traditional system of medicine, you go and train as a Tibetan herbalist, you spend 20 years as an apprentice before you start to actually, you know, work yourself. And that's all about learning remedy, recipe, learning about stories and myths and poems and learning about the eight different ways you can use the skin of an apricot. You know, I mean, it, it, that has to be learned and, and, and we all have to do that. We have to know when to gather things, how to gather things, what's safe, what isn't, what dose it. We need to we need that rational, solid, defined stuff. But that alone, and this is the interesting thing that where we've got this, this, this challenge with biomedicine, is that it's very two-dimensional. Yeah. And it doesn't give a narrative. So if you've got someone with, you know, let's just say someone with, let's just say, inflammatory condition, <laughs> and all of your anti-inflammatory herbs, and you go, oh, I'll give them this last. <laughs> and then they come back the next week, it's not working. You go, oh, what should I give them now? Oh, I'll give them this last. And eventually you go through all 5,000 anti-inflammatory herbs. Um, because that's the only way you can do it. If you're working in that sort of very two-dimensional, defined way of just sticking things in, in that very, very categorical way. Yeah. You need yeah. some way of, of, of bringing in the non-rational, of bringing yeah. in the inspirational, of bringing in the, if you like, the story of the patient and the story of the herb and the story of the process of healing. Mm. And within humoral medicine, because it's like all of these traditional systems, the description of the cycles of nature, it's all about the, the, the cyclical way that, that the cosmos exists. Yeah. So disease is always seen as an excess, as one aspect of that cycle. So if it's an excess of heat and dryness of collar, then that's a bit like an ex excess of the summer. Because the summer, mm. in the summer, we're more likely to get drought, aren't we? Mm. And when we get stuck in drought and that doesn't change and doesn't move on, then, then, then we have disease because naturally we all have heat, we all have cold and wet. It, it's part of the, 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 the daily cycle, the life cycle, the cycle of health and disease. So 
so really humoral medicine's giving us that narrative and it's telling us that if someone is stuck at this place how do we respond to it how do we respond to that particular excess and often it's through looking at nature and so at this time of year you know you're probably doing the same as here we, we we're looking at the the lovely effect in in this this is just the end of what's you know we're in the crossover between the end of the winter the phlegmatic wet cold season moving into the sanguine period of the year which is the air element uh, warm and moist so the warmth of the sun now we pass the uh, the equinox the warmth returns so we've got the wetness left over from the, the flame of the winter the water of the winter and now what's changed is the warmth so it's cold and now it's warm so now warm and warm and moist all evaporates the water becomes air so at this point in that transition what does nature do so nature helps that transition by all the nettles and the cleavers and the dandelion yeah. coming up and they're they're turning that cold dampness through their vital heat into life again and turning it into life and vitality mm. and so traditionally of course we would have done that wouldn't we? we would have just eaten the nettles because that's that's what there was because we are part of that cycle yeah so when you see a person for instance but the other interesting is the, the other herbs that, you, that we're also getting of course what do we see i mean we get the earliest of our some of our herbs the ones like alexander's come up here which is mm. a relative mm -hmm. of of angelica hot and dry we get i've got lots of ground ground ivy coming up which is you know a lovely a lovely warm and dry plant we've got yeah. all the mints coming up warm and dry we've so, got ramps ramps wild, wild leeks and i guess the ramsons would yeah, be coming yeah up. ramsons exactly another mars herb yeah <laughs> exactly so what we've got at this time of year as well as it it being if you like those herbs which are which are you know <clears throat> we think of as very cleansing we've also got these herbs which are also very warming because that helps us move from the cold wetness, the cold phlegmatic, into the warmth of the spring. And through that movement, of course, you clear that excess phlegm. And if you think of, of yeah, ramsons, you know, wild garlic, of course, what better for clearing thick, cold, congested phlegm? So those ones like ramsons, which are considered to have a martian, well, martian quality, of course, that's cutting, that's going to clear through phlegm. And of course, it's hot and it's dry, hot in the third degree. So that means it really brings heat in even possibly it's verging or hot in the fourth degree. So if you put a, put a bulb on your skin, you know, a clove on your skin, like cultivated garlic, it will blister. So that makes it hot yeah. in the fourth degree. Yeah. And whereas ground, ground ivy, gently minty warming is warm in the first degree. Right. So, and then again, if you look at ones like ground ivy, which is a, which is a Venus herb associated with the phlegmatic humor, you can see the connection there. And the story of how it connects to clearing phlegm, whether that's from phlegmatic organs such as the lungs, the sinuses, the brain even. So, so that the lovely thing about the humoral system is it's really just giving us a language that we can use. Yeah. And it, it's giving us the sort of the clear definition of that, because you know, we've all, we all as Westerners, we know about these words. They're they're part of our they're part mm -hmm. of our they're part of our language aren't they they're part of our culture they resonate with us already and that 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 you know especially if you it just things like it'd be like shakespeare of course the whole of shakespeare is all it's all about the temperaments it's uh -huh. all about humans and and it's, it's so deeply embedded in our cultural way of seeing the world that we've already got all that language yeah, yeah so you mean so like much. people saying mel like i'm feeling very melancholy right. today or yeah. like 
chill out or yeah know, yeah so chill out you know for instance the every organ has a natural temperament just like so so you know the the basis in in the humoral system it's very simple it has what's called the six uh sorry the seven naturals and they're just the main things that make make up us in the cosmos in 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 the cosmos and the basis of that is the elements the four elements and then the next one the second the second natural is the temperaments of those elements okay. so when you talk about temperament we're saying you know fire the, the element of fire is hot and dry and the organs that are hot and dry so for instance particularly the gallbladder the, the seat of color interestingly the nose is thought to be hot and dry the the front of the brain because it apprehends ideas mm. It distills ideas from this massive sort of stuff, you know, it distills it, which is what heat does. Mm. So, so each organ, however, the natural temperament of the head, because it's out of the body, it's all very wet in there. Mm, yeah. <laughs> moisture. It's, it's a phlegmatic organ. Mm-hmm. So actually it works best when it's, when it's cool, calm and collected. Mm-hmm. And we know that if too much wind in the brain, we have the ventricles of the brain, they're full of wind, and the way that things move around is the idea that there's these, this wind of the brain, and if it gets too excessive wind, then are those herbs which are particularly good for calming that excess wind of the brain. Cowslip flowers, particularly mm. very good. Chamomile does mm. the same. What it does is it stops the windiness of the brain. Ah. But chamomile is a, is a sun herb, and so if yeah. the brain is too cold, and if you've got a head pain associated with excess cold, then chamomile is wonderful. And because the brain is naturally cold, a lot of head pain is often associated with cold conditions. So you think of rosemary, it's our traditional folk remedy for head pain. Rosemary for memory, yeah. right. sun herb. So it's countering any excess coldness in the brain. Oh. As we get older, the last part of life, we're like winter. We're starting to get cold and damp. Mm-hmm. We, get, we get more puffy, mm-hmm. uh, we get edema. Mm-hmm. And so your brain also gets colder. It loses, you know, the, the, the movement of the heat and warmth in it. Yeah. It's overwhelmed by the excess coldness that's now developed as we age. Mm-hmm. And so the phlegmatic, wet, damp organs, the lungs as well, you know, as you get older, because you tend to get more lung problems. Mm-hmm. The, the venous side of the heart, of course, the venous side associated with venous, uh-huh. the watery side of the circulation, the venous circulation we get varicose veins we get varicose ulcers we get edema associated with venous collapse Mm -hmm. and that's because of all this excess phlegm in old age so of course rosemary prime sun herb warming and drying yeah uh, particularly is going to help to move it helps the heart helps the lungs particularly good herb we know for old people and for elders generally helps the brain warms it up gets us to bring the memories that sit in the back, traditionally in the back of the brain, which is associated with the earth humor, the middle of the brain associated with the air humor and the liver, because the liver chooses what is nourishing and gets rid of the waste, our midbrain where the judgments are. To make a good judgment, we choose what is a good thought, get rid of the dross. (laughs) The middle of the brain is associated with with the liver and Jupiter and the air element. A pretty Herbert, Herbert example of that would be great for the brain. Great for, yeah. Think about hyssop and associated with royalty and judgment. And, you know, they even gave Jesus on the cross hyssop, the, the, the vinegar on a, on a sprig of hyssop, because it was a representative of his royal status, of being the king, the divine guidance, 
Yeah, in the middle of the brain, that's what we need. We need the yeah. divine guidance. Yeah, it's purifying the dross too. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's it's the love the thing I love about it. I mean, I love stories, and I think that the stories of medicine, the stories of herbs, the stories of people, they become this wonderful tapestry that we as practitioners have, in a sense, we've become the weavers of that tapestry. People come with their threads. <laughs> Plants come with a thread, <laughs> the season comes with a thread, the patient comes with a thread, and we weave mm. it all together and make it all whole. That's our job. Mm -hmm. So, and 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 this is a bit, you know, the, the, the humoral system for me is it's it's the, you know, if you're going to weave a tapestry, you have a pattern. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. And this is um, like the, the traditional system of energetics in the West. It is, yeah. Yeah, so it evolved initially from the Hippocratic corpus with Hippocrates. It was then refined by the Roman physician Galen in the first century. And really what we have as that sort of model is really, it's, it's also known as Galenic medicine, because pretty much it was, you know, laid down by, by Galen, the structure that we use today. And then there was a period where a lot of that knowledge was lost within European culture. It, it was still held in, in, in Arabic culture and still in parts of the Middle East and, and North Africa. They still use only tip medicine, which is exactly the same as humoral. It is humoral medicine. And interestingly, I know I've got, I've got friends from who come, come from Iran and they talk about how everyone knows the temperament of each food. <laughs> they know which food's cool and which warm and which dry and which moisten. They, they just this stuff they, 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 they just it's still part of the common parlance so you know and, and then what happened in 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 from the sort of 12th to 14th century into Italy the the teachings that were still held in the libraries in 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 the Arabic world came into Europe and and then it was picked up within European philosophy mysticism and, and it became part of everything. It became part of the seven liberal arts, the, the, seven, the seven things that we had to learn to liberate ourselves from ignorance. And then we could become fully engaged as citizens within, within, within a culture. So that's really where it all comes from. And in our tradition, certainly in, in Europe, obviously there was a, a big, you know, when chemistry evolved, and, and physicians became, became associated with, with the chemists and apothecaries became chemists and started to use chemical medicines. And really Culpepper and Parkinson's herbal in the, written in the UK, I mean, they were pretty much the last herbals written before chemical medicine really started to be used widely at, 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 at the end of the 17th century. So we pretty much get the end of it with, with Culpepper and Parkinson. And then of course, what happened was also there was a huge amount of medicine coming in from the new world. And, you know, if you were going to go to your chemist or apothecary, you weren't going to pay them anything for nettles, were you? But if they, you know, had some exotic medicine that had come hundreds, you know, thousands, but it, I mean, that's what everyone wanted. Yeah, we yeah. want the sassafras. They want, they, exactly. They wanted all the exotic stuff and, and, and it could be charged for. And yeah. so the physicians would prescribe that because ah. they weren't going to prescribe what the wise women down the road right. <laughs> right. what you may be giving you. No, no, no. <laughs> yep. 
yeah they they you went to them because you were you know you were the the the, the cultured the wealthy the gentry and that's who physicians were there for mm-hmm. and then what happened in in the uk we were first nation to get industrialized and so the the agricultural knowledge and wisdom that was still held in the countryside although some of that still existed till quite recently in small pockets and and stories and and, and in people's memories it very much has dissipated and that started 250 years ago when we had the Enclosure Act, and so people lost common land, people were forced to move into the newly growing industrialised cities. And then what happened in the 1850s is botanic medicine came back from the States into the big industrial cities of the UK. And that really brought, and so that's why a lot of the Western herbal medicine that evolved in the UK, you know, we use a lot of herbs like KN and, and Echinacea, and <laughs> yeah. those ones, because that's, that's what had come back right, um, right. and was given to us as botanic medicine. And, and that, but of course, botanic medicine had taken what Culpepper and Parkinson had been doing here and had taken it there. So it kind of came back here. Yeah, it's just it funny, refreshed. like, yeah. Yeah, and then we've got, you know, so we've still got, you know, I mean, I've known people who have been my patients. I was part of a project in the UK called the Ethnomedica Project, where we were talking to elders. Most of them have passed on now, but ones who were born pre, you know, d- during the wars, between the two wars, and were still being brought up in households that were using country medicines. And so that knowledge still is existent to some degree, but it's very, very fragmented now. But a lot of it has been recorded. And, you know, medicine's a living and dynamic thing. And of course, True. as we practice as, as practitioners, as we have patients, they come and we give them something, they come back and tell us something about it. We didn't even know how we learned most of our stuff, isn't it? So, so yeah. you know, we, we're all part of this river of, of, of you know, it's the, it's the river of nature, isn't it? Mm. Flowing, flowing through the cosmos. And we're all, we're all in it together with the plants and the animals. And, 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 you know, the humoral story is just, just a song sung about that, about that river. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we're living in this very interconnected, globalized world where traditions from all, from all these different cultures are now cross-pollinating too. And, and when you find a system like now, I'm studying Vedic astrology right now, and it's making me see the Western astrology that I have been studying in a whole different light. And we have like TCM practitioners and so, and so on. And, and they have more kind of in more consistent, holistic, in, integrated approaches, which draw a lot of people from the West too, because they, yeah. it seems so, so coherent, but that, that also does exist in, in, with, with the humoral medicine, with the medical astrology and so on. But yeah. it, yeah, I think you're right. And I think for me, it felt like, you know, I was lucky that I met the teachers I did. I had a very good yeah. mentor who's known as Christopher Headley. His, 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 his writings, fortunately, he, he passed on a few years ago. But posthumously, his writings are being published by Aeon Books in the UK. Should be coming out next month. And a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Um, and he really held the humoral tradition for us UK herbalists very, very strongly. That's um, awesome. And it, it felt that we needed we needed to regain our confidence to talk about these things from a place of understanding and practice and you can't just take that and use it you have to practice it Mm -hmm. yeah I I mean the way I 
having met Dylan, I, I bizarrely actually started writing my book a long time ago in On the Island of Kos, which is where Bookerty's came yeah. away. I guess you just gone on a family holiday. We just got a package holiday with the kids or whatever. We've just gone there. Mm -hmm. uh, I had taken the, the copy of the complete Culpepper, which has the London dispensary, which is all the Culpepper stuff. It's a, a big fat book, you know, there's lots mm -hmm. of secondhand copies around you can pick up. Yeah. Um, and, and I'd taken that with me. I just literally thrown it at the last minute. And while I was there, I visited the Asclepian, which of course was amazing. But, but also I happened to decide I was going to learn, oh, what's it, you know, uh, windsurfing, that's right. Windsurfing? <laughs> I was windsurfing, so I was in the sea, threw myself in the sea, and I cut my ankle. Uh -huh. And it quickly became infected. Uh -huh. And so I couldn't do anything apart from lie on a sun lounger with my, with my leg up. So I needed, I had to do something. And so there I was on, on, on Kos, the home of, of Hippocrates with this book, basically with Gulf. I said, okay, well now I'm really gonna get to grips with what is all this phlegmatic and humoral and melancholic. I've used these words a lot and I would use them in my practice, but do I really understand them? And I thought, well, no, actually they're just, you know, what is an element? What is, what are we talking about spirits? You know, we all use these words. And so oh, I'm really spiritual, what, what do we mean? You know, there's a very, very distinct way of using this language that's that, that if we know what we're all talking about, we don't get in a muddle. Yeah, um, right, we can discuss right. that. We can discuss what we think about the vital spirit or or the natural spirit or the virtues of the body or whether, you know, we're, you know the stomach and its temperament. Or what. We can discuss it if we understand what we're talking about, getting back to that rational thing. Yeah. And so I was, I was confined to... Uh, to recovering with my foot up for a week and 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 I just read it and and started to pick all this stuff up and started to write my and at that point I just knew I've got to write this has to be I needed a book to read that would explain it for me uh -huh. there is a very good book that you might still get I think it's out of print called Culpepper's Medicine by a chap called Graham Tobin you uh -huh. might have come across it's a very very good book it's very academic and for a practitioner it's 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 quite heavy going to turn it just into practice because Graham's a fantastic academician and he talks about it from really the academic exploration of of the of the system and I really felt someone who was using it and could use it in their practice should be able to then put flesh on the bones mm. and also you know I mean we have a lot of opportunities. I've been to the States. I had an opportunity to join a sun dance on, in, 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 in the States. I spent a lot of time in Africa where I spent time with traditional healers. And so I was able to directly experience healing rituals in cultures, which mm. were still practicing them as they'd always been practiced. Yeah. And as far as I can understand, I think it from, from piecing things together, I think those rituals, certainly the rituals I experienced in Africa, were very, very similar to the kinds of healing rituals that would have been practiced in the Asclepian temples of, of ancient Greece and, and yeah. all over Europe, actually, they spread. That's a very important point. And it's also amazing that you were on Kos, that, because that's where Hippocrates started school, but also that's, I think, where the first astrological school was founded by Barosus, the Mesopotamian Babylonian astrologer in like 200 BC or so. Yes. So <laughs> it's like yeah. that, that, that island. It's, it's one of those nodes, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, total nodes. Maybe you just suck there and something happens. It spits you right. out. Right. Like, I go okay. do that now. You're reading Culpepper, who's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
But That's so cool. in the West, herbalism has been so like with the advent of chemical medicine and with the advent of the medical industrial complex and the, I mean, you know, herbalists were persecuted, prosecuted and gotten rid of in yeah. much of the U.S. for multiple generations. But we, we, we look at things in terms of medical industrial ideas and in terms of rationalism, in terms of material reductionism. Yeah. And that's, so those other things, the astrology, the rituals, which are an incredibly important part of a coherent system are not valued. They're not valued and they're not, they're, they don't oh, exist. And that's why I think one of the reasons why people want to go to TCM or Ayurveda mm. or, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, and of course, I think you're quite, and, and what often happens is people finish their training and they try this and they try it. And, and I found it sort of literally after about a couple of years, I kind of forgot most of what I'd learned. And that, like, what am I going to do? Am I just going to now reread all of my notes and just go back to where I was? Am I just going to spend my whole time on a computer? Well, we didn't have computers when I, am I going to try and sign up to a thousand journals? And, and is that the way that I'm going to feed my practice? Or am I going to do, because it's clear that, you know, everything we know in the way we are using herbs, we, we know that that's, those are ancient uses. What we read about in Culpepper, Parkinson, Dioscorides, it's the same. And what we're discovering biomedically is confirmation, a biomedical pharmacokinetic justification. It's just a just a it's a it's a Western biomedical story about that herb, just like the humoral stories about that herb, but they're saying the same thing. But to access the biomedical story, you have to depend on someone else to do that research. So if we can go back to embracing the way of gaining wisdom that the ancient, our ancients did, and if we can make that our own as well, then we have direct access. Right. But right. like then they did have their, their rational aspect mm -hmm. of it. Like yeah. We've got our rational, we've got the pharmacology. We can say, no, that don't eat that, that's poisonous or whatever it is. Well, we understand why that's doing that now. We yep. understand why medicinal mushrooms are doing X, Y, and Z. We understand about the beta-glucans. Great. Yeah. yeah. And that's great. Yeah. It's amazing. It's great. And we yeah. have that. But if we have that alone, we're, it's a bit like what happened. You know, the, the, there's some very interesting books written by people like Peter Kingsley, you may have read, who talks about the Neoplatonists. Yeah. And how really from that point onwards, what happened was that instead of experiencing consciousness directly, as people still do in the East in meditation and those, those kinds of practices, we started actually just talking about it. And uh -huh. so within philosophy didn't become the love of the goddess philosophia, the love of the goddess Sophia, heart-led emotional experiential thing. It, it became an intellectual discussion about that thing. Mm -hmm. yeah and it totally. remained so for two thousand years mm. so we and and we, we we've inherited that as a as a sort of cultural stance and also throughout that time of course you could say that's been linked up with the with with the growing strength of patriarchal hierarchical structures within culture within western culture and when we look back at the ancient healing traditions of course and pre diasterides and pre the ancient Greeks, of course, all of this came was being practiced by the many different peoples that lived in, have lived all over the Eurasian continent. And what then became formalized by Galen, you know, 
the, we know from, from ancient archaeology that all of these concepts, concepts of, of night and day, sun and moon, movement of tides, seasons, plants, tree of life, all of this, this is ancient, ancient stuff. This is, yeah. this is not just something that was owned by Galen and Hippocrates. They, they talked about it as Greeks, as ancient Greeks coming from their quite patriarchal and hierarchical perspective. Right, they formulated it in their language at that, from their time, but it was like the tree of life exists. I mean, it exists in, in Taoism. It exists in ancient Assyria. It's yeah, even, of course it does. And and interestingly, even within Greek medicine, when you look at the Asclepian healing temples, they couldn't expunge the feminine and the sacred feminine. And so the the healing god Asclepius, he he always is used in the rituals with his daughter Hygieia who is also in a mystery of the healing, she is a healing deity in her own right. Mm -hmm. And the Greeks still recognize, although that they were very, a very patriarchal culture and the Greek Olympian gods had taken over from the pre-existent feminine earth mother goddess, the triple goddess of Europe, they couldn't expunge her. And so she continued to exist within the rituals and within the symbolism and within the practices just the Greeks weren't going to accept it and talk about it and, and give it authority because <laughs> they didn't have you know what I mean it hasn't got a beard it hasn't got authority however you you know you look at actually the way that things were being practiced it, it, it was still and again you know the feminine is so much associated with the non-rational mm-hmm. with the dreaming and you know so 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 the healing process would often you know would complete with a visit to the healing to the abaton which was the dream temple and in that place, you would hope to get a healing dream, which was oh, a final catharsis yeah. and clearance through a, through a non-rational experience of the healing process. So in a, a bit like, you know, you had this rational process of application of herbs to, to prepare for the non-rational experience of, of going into the, the becoming entranced within the abaton and within the healing dream, going through a process of the non-rational process of, of catharsis and healing. And again, it's interesting because when you think about, and, and in humoral medicine, we also use things, things like using forms of catharsis, such as vomiting, you know, purging, all of these kinds of things. You know, these are non-rational things. We're not, it's not something we're rationally doing. It's our body. It's, you know, the same as singing and dancing and getting into ecstatics and they're non-rational. And these are the things which were always used to give the completion to the healing process. So, yeah, I mean, the lovely thing is that we, we from where we stand, we're not entrenched within our rational reductionist Western viewpoint. And this wonderful internet has enabled us to, you know, further extend our web of wisdom, which, which you know, is, is, is like nature. It will happen. Any plants will grow everywhere. We, 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 nature will just spring up even in the internet. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, not, we're not separate from nature, you know? Yes. It's, yeah. yeah we're, we're the weeds we're, of the internet, aren't we? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the internet's made out of minerals and, uh, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it's a flowering of the mineral world. Mm-hmm. But that, that the dream incubation is so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I had heard of this, you know, studying ancient classical culture, but it I didn't realize how important it was as part of the healing journey. It's like the you're saying it's, it's really like the culmination and the catharsis, and it is that it's that non-rational. And in a lot of ways, it's similar to what like in the Amazon, would you be doing a dieta and then doing, you know, drinking the ayahuasca and so on? It's, it's kind of a Western equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. And I mean, the, 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 it's interesting because when you go into a ritual, a group ritual state, so in Africa, in a ritual state, everyone in that ritual is entering a trance state. So when you have a ritual and you have, you know, you, it, 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 it's all, it's done traditionally. So it comes from the idea that these, the, these four, four circles, the inner circle is the hearth, is the ancestors of the home. The circle around it are the diviners who are dancing around the hearth. The circle around that are all of the people who've been called to join the ceremony and they've all brought their ancestral energy. And they stay, they sit in the circle and they sing and clap and, and together. And then finally, it's all encased in the circle of the hut. So it's got these four circles, which are the four, like the four elements and the four traditional groupings of ancestors. And mm -hmm. together they bring healing. But within wow. that, held within that, everyone is in a trance. Mm -hmm. So if people are sitting in the outer circle and the divine is in the middle who are working themselves into a trance to bring the voice of the ancestors through, if the people in the in sitting around the walls are not singing and are not clapping, they, they, you, I've seen it, they, they, they're going out and they're shaking, they're saying, wake up, clap, sing, this is medicine, <laughs> You can't be here just looking at the ceiling, clap, you know, because it's everyone becomes this, this ritual trance. And so the, the healing rituals of that kind of course, that's exactly what happened in the Greek healing temples and in, in the Abaton, this is what it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that's what was going on. It's, it's a yeah. healing ritual. And it's the whole community being healed. It yeah. is entirely everyone. Everyone benefits, and 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 indigenous medicine and indigenous culture has always been like that. It's always about reciprocation. I'll feed you. You yeah. bring your ancestors. Come to my. Come to. I want them most powerful ritual. I want three hundred people here. Well, I better provide food and drink for three hundred people, and then they'll come. Mm. If they come, wow, there's going to be. And it, you, you know the power of three hundred people, packed into a small hut. I mean, they'll try. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You know, yeah. the power of that is immense. You know, we know that the, the, the power of, of, of you know, group energy. Yeah. We know that power. You go to an amazing gig and everyone's jumping together, <laughs> singing together. And there's this, it takes over. And, and they understood that. And, and, and they, they knew how to use that because that is the ancient way of humans. Mm hmm it's a bit difficult for us to do as individuals in our little consulting rooms, but we can still try and still sing with our page. Do you, yeah, how do you incorporate dreams or a ritual into your practice? It's, it, it, it really depends A, on the patient because it's all about the patient and where, where they're, where they're coming. But for me, because I've also trained in Africa with some patients, I may even do, do traditional African divination, which is not really part of humoral medicine. But I will often use, I'll often use physical medicines such as steams. I may do vomits, that's quite not uncommon. In Africa, there's a lot of vomiting that's used, a lot of, you know, the medicines very much are about protection and catharsis. So it's all about red medicines and, and blue medicines. One's about cleansing and one's about strengthening and protecting. And so we, in Africa, I learned a lot about how to do vomits safely and effectively. So, so I do use those. And, you know, often, I mean, I do, I do body work as well. So, which is really helpful. And again, within the sleeping tradition, within humoral medicine, of course, within the healing temples, there would have been gymnasia, there would have been baths, there would have been uh, a massage, there would have been all of that going on, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, I, I do use body work as well. So I use 
oils, infused oils and things as part of that. I also use rattles. It's again something that mm. I, you know, we know from the Native American tradition, other traditions. In Africa, rattles are used a lot, so I use them often as part of a way of 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 removing the static that builds up around our or your know, energy of yeah yeah right away and they're open and you know so i might use that as part of a bodywork treatment oh. so you know i'm very eclectic in the way i work mm. and it's from you know we have this opportunity we we, we we've had the opportunity to travel we've had the opportunity to internet we we've learned a lot of stuff and and you know after we've done that for a few decades hopefully we we've got enough we've got enough tools and we should be using them yeah. Yeah. And I think part of the, the importance of this is to find is find the how they all work together and the coherence and the integration yeah. of them all. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm learning by studying Vedic astrology is how like the template, like because, for instance, you wouldn't be using Aoife in humoral medicine, but you might be using geomancy, which is related you know, or you'd be using the coverture or so on. Like there is divination, like there's a divination component. There's like the, yeah. the actual physical medicine. There's the ritual. There's, you know, there's all these components that they work together. And you can, in this age where we can access all these different techniques from all these different cultures, yeah. you maybe you know, we'll be using different ones from different cultures, but yeah. having a framework for putting it all together is yeah. really important. Yeah, I think it's the, the, it gives us, it, 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 I mean, Christopher Headley said to me, he said, none of this has got to, you know, it's, it doesn't help your patients. So it helps is you. Aha, uh-huh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. They don't care. <laughs> they don't care what you think. They want to get better. It's, it's yeah. you that it's about. It helps you. Yeah. Um, that, and in humoral medicine, probably the most important form of diagnosis is actually the, the empathetic understanding of where your patient is. Mm. Because that will, that will event that will really pin down what is going on with them humorally and and because we we live in cultures that tell us to be this way and that way and we 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 grow up learning how to be in the world and 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 we we wear all these masks and our patients do too but emotionally that's something that even even in the most masked person (laughs) the emotions will escape yeah (laughs) especially when they're in a a place of of illness or when they've got something wrong yeah i mean choleric people hate talking about sickness they hate being sick they always fight it and deny it and run away from it and forget that they're ever ill Mm -hmm. so but even even that seeing someone like that immediately tells you something deeply about their their emotional states and the way they deal with the world and that is more important than tongue diagnosis pulse, pulse diagnosis blood tests it's more important than anything Mm-hmm. If you can get that, you 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 you've got everything really. So it all goes back to being human and and relating to each other as humans and, and to our human story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's first. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's beautiful too because there are a lot of a lot of healers who have not been so educated on all these things, but it they've had the compassion and the empathy. And that's what's, that's the most important thing. Yeah, It is. It's there in all of us. You don't have to go to the Amazon or to Africa or anywhere. It's here. Mm-hmm. And those of us who've had those opportunities can come back and say, well, I went all that way and I'll tell you it's here anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've had to go there for 10 years and spend all my life savings on it. Yeah. 
<laughs> you don't have to. You've already got it. Mm, yeah. Maybe we need to do that so we can tell people, oh, see, you're doing it. Kind of reminds me of like the, the chemist back in the day who wouldn't prescribe nettle, nettle but it's already yeah. there right down the road. And sometimes it's just, yeah. you need some nettle. <laughs> the plants, you don't have to go to the Amazon to talk to the plants. Talk to them, they're outside your window. Yeah, totally. You know, that, that's the thing, isn't it? And it's it's giving, because people do think, you know, we are a basis, a big element of our culture is about acquisition. Yeah. knowledge of status mm-hmm. experiences mm-hmm. and we think oh no i'm not big enough i'm not strong enough so i'm acquired enough because that's how we're supposed to grow, we grow the constant time. state of growth just yeah. Up, up, yeah yeah we don't grow as in us growing mm-hmm. grow by piling more and more stuff on us mm-hmm. so so you know we come from that culture and we all think oh no i'm not i'm not competent <laughs> i haven't acquired enough certificates to put on my wall mm-hmm. yep you know what I mean we always feel we're one course short yeah yeah but at the same time like a traditional healer would also be apprenticing with a master for 20 years yeah of course and so at that at that point and and that's one of the things we don't have as much anymore is that like really long-term apprenticeship or Um, like the lineage of like the grandmother grandfather passing it down to their children and grandchildren like there's been some some breaks in that lineage yeah. of like traditional knowledge and healing yeah. and plant knowledge being passed down in families yeah it really reminds me i'll tell you a little bit story about about christopher he mm. visited the states and canada and i was given after he died i was given something of his and i didn't actually know what it was a little pot mm. and in the pot i opened it and it was full of feathers mm. and i looked at these feathers and they were like little they were like the down feathers they were very very soft and lovely and and I just thought, oh, that's very nice. <laughs> and then at a point later on, I was looking at it again, and inside there was a little bit of birch bark. You know how you can put it off paper. And he had written on it, vulture. Oh, huh. so there were the feathers he'd collected from a, from a vulture. Wow. And immediately I understood something very profound, that he was directly telling us that he has, he, he's like, he was like a vulture. Uh-huh. He flew around, saw everything, mm-hmm. and from all that had died before, he took nourishment mm-hmm. and then fed us his chicks. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. They talking about it. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Mm. So, yeah, we, this is what we are. We're the vultures for the future generation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're producing this lineage. We're reviving it remembering it and putting it back together yeah and i think this book is a really helpful addition to this work because you know people hear the word melancholy people hear the word choleric um and they kind of know what it is but there haven't as far as i know there haven't been books that really explain how it all fits together in a long time and not everyone's going to pick up culpepper (laughs) yeah and and, that doesn't even explain it yeah. yeah And I mean, it was the book that I felt I needed when I started practicing. Mm-hmm. So I felt that having had the opportunity to develop a practice like that, I really needed to provide that. It was a bit like, you know, the, all those teachers, the gifts that have been given to us, you know, as if they'd given the things I'd learned to me so that I could then put it together in this format. And, uh, you know, because there's a lot of very practical stuff. So, you know, I, I, I like thinking in in 
the way things network and fix together. So I've done a lot of things. If you've looked at things like flow charts that show that, that if you're a melancholic person, how are you likely to go out of balance and what are the signs of that? What are the mm. symptoms? How do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. How do you clear it? Mm-hmm. And so for each of the different humoral presentations, the different kinds of temperamental presentations, the melancholics we have, the phlegmatics we have, mm-hmm. the sanguines and the cholerics we have, there's a, there's a specific way they're likely to go out of balance. And so providing a viewpoint of that in a very, very clear formed way to think, oh, okay, this is what happens to cholerics when they get too choleric. Oh. Can you give us some examples? Like using... manifest. Oh, and this is what I should do. So I tried to just give that, and it's not, it's not a dogma. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's, it's a description of, of, of how I've worked with it and how I found it to work practically, but it comes from this tradition. Mm-hmm. So, so helpful. It's for everyone to work with that, and the main, you're very free to completely disagree with it. Yeah, <laughs> it would be a much more interesting conversation with people when they when we do when we have when we bring in our different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. That's how it's always been. Yeah. Yeah. So what what would an example of like say a choleric person look like out of balance and some things that they could do to go into balance just to use. Well, it's a good, a, a, good, a, good, a good example, often, you know, a very hot skin conditions are going to be quite common in choleric people. I recently had a 60-year-old man, he'd been in the Navy, he was a, he was a, he'd risen high up, he'd been, I don't know, whatever they become in the Navy, and he'd done <laughs> it with life, and he loved sailing, and, you know, because he liked to take on nature and win, and everything was very clear, he's very forthright, yeah. Uh, upright, you know, very, very Martian, very, very militaristic, very choleric. Yeah. Lovely guy, generous, clear, mm-hmm. a good leader, mm-hmm. uh, protection, protective, very protective of people. Is some, you know, wonderful person, great choleric. But yeah, you don't want to get an argument with him. Never give any ground. <laughs> yeah. And he, he presented with rosacea. Okay. Uh-huh. And so, and I look, we, we talked about various things and obviously I, you know, looking at his diet and, you know, his breakfast included a nice big glass of orange juice, but a sugar, of course, which is going to mm. add heat. Sugar's a bit like petrol, produces lots of heat immediately and then makes us cold. Right. So we started, went through all the diet and, you know, tried to cut out excess alcohol, sugars, all of the things that you would normally do to get rid of the, all those heating and drying things in his diet. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I gave him some bitters. Obviously, that's you always give bitters to to cholerics. Mm-hmm. Tibetan herbalist told me once that apparently the one thing they say is once you've done all your training, they then say to you, if you don't know what's going on with your patient, give them gentian. Ah, yes. If they don't get better, you'll know that the cause of their disease is not heat. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> That's anyway, I gave him gentian and, and I gave him some nice, you know, general cleansing teas, the ones I would use for the state of, of moving people through fevers. So they're, they're, there's warming herb, herbs warming in the first degree, well, our fever herbs. So ones like elderflower, yarrow, lime blossom, chamomile. So I gave that as a tea. I always like to give teas, particularly on drink treating the skin. Carl mm. Pepper said, that anything associated with passages and the skin, because passages are lined with skin, skin's associated with the passages. You use, you want to use teas and decoctions. They go quickly in and quickly out. So, so always give teas. And he did very well, actually. Things were way, way better. And then I saw him in the, about 
four or five months later, that was in the summer, and he came back in February and everything was terrible. You know, it was the middle of the winter, why is a choleric terrible? And of course, the way that when you think of the energetics and the movement of things is that in the winter, as everything cools down, we're much more likely to get cold congestion. Mm-hmm. And because cholerics, because they're always overdoing things and overheating, mm-hmm. they get left with a lot of debris left behind. Oh. You know, and, and we, we know, for instance, you know, we're now using words like amyloid, aren't we? Which we know is debris left behind after inflammation in the brain. This is the old word for it. They used to call it atribilis or black bile. Mind. And in the winter, when everything's coldest and there's less innate heat and energy, those blocks really start to show up. And you're moving less, you know, you're not getting as much exercise, probably. Yeah. So as soon as he came back, I gave him the spring tonics. I put him on metal, I metal juice, cleavers juice that I freeze, and uh, you know, I go and juice it, freeze it in ice cubes, and then give that as a medicine. Mm -hmm. And so I gave him that and also, again, brought back in some of those lovely spring herbs, again, the ones that then work in the cathartic way to actually get it out, out of the blood and, and out of the body. And, and again, it got him to move on again. So that was a lovely example of how the narrative of the humoral oh, cycle yeah. enables you to have a narrative about treating a patient. Mm. Yeah, and that's one of the difficulties we have in biomedicine because you go, oh no, he's come back again. Well, I didn't. It's not working anymore. What am I going to do? It's a different season, and yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, it's it's that whole thing of 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 understanding these our patients are nature. What what do we see nature doing? Why is that when nature has these problems and gets stuck? How does it respond to it? And how can we then respond to it? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too because. In terms of the the humor humoral system, as opposed to like in the the doshas in Ayurveda, you know you know vata pitta kapha. Yeah, but we have four in in the West, and they're also tied to the tropical zodiac because the tropical zodiac is seasonal. You know, it's based yeah. on equinoxes yeah. and solstices. Yeah, because in the Vedic, it's sidereal. It's based on the stars. So yeah. it's a but also it, there's less difference in seasons there. I mean, they have like a monsoon season and so on. Yeah. But we have in, in the Northern Hemisphere and in, in yeah. Northern Europe. Yeah, and, four. Right, four distinct seasons. There, yeah. And yeah. they're very the hot. The summer is hot. The winter is cold, especially yeah. in yeah. North America. The summer is really hot and this cold yeah. winter is really yeah. cold. Yeah. So it's a, it, it, I, I'm starting to try to see how these different systems operate better in different lands. Think, different yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. I think you're right. You know, they've evolved out of cultures that are embedded in a particular part of the planet right yeah and it may mean that you you can still use you can still transpose them because actually most people now don't live in in the climate of their planet do they live in these right <laughs> yeah acclimatized boxes so yeah. but still we're still keyed into the planets keyed into the seasonal cycles the lunar cycles the solar cycles whether we're just in a box the whole time you know we know that as part of our it's been shown now as part of our dna that this rhythmic cyclical connection is embedded even within our dna and it continues whether you look someone in the dark room or not cycles still happen yeah i mean even just the the night and the day you know being in the north just that the difference in the light you, yeah. you still have windows most of the time. You do, exactly. You do. And there is a difference in the summer between the length of the days and the winter. You wind. do, yeah. And people do do manifest that quite clearly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, this has been a really wonderful conversation, Steve. So interesting. Yeah. 
I'm really glad that we got to have this and that you put this book out, The Humoral Herbal, because I think it's it is really important for the revival of this tradition. So is, is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Just get out there and and talk to the plants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they will talk back. Yes. And you can get the Humoral Herbal from Aeon Books. Yeah. And there, there should be a, a discount code, which we'll put in the description. Right, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, this is this is this is yeah. yeah, really enjoyable talking to you both. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, yeah, you never know in the future. Maybe we'll have more inspiring and yeah, enjoyable, enjoyable chats. Yeah, I would love to do that again. We have so much to talk about. <laughs> yeah, really.